0: Today's podcast is brought to you by H&H Cologne at Home. H&H Cologne at Home is a 100% digital show. From March 26th to 28th, 2021, Cologne Mesa will present the latest trends and product innovations as part of the new comprehensive H&H Cologne at home digital marketplace. You will find all fully updated information about your participation possibilities, new content and prices of the digital H&H Cologne 2021 and the coming weeks on www.hh-cologne.com. Thank you so much H&H Cologne at Home, and now here's the show. Welcome to episode one hundred and eighty four of the Craft Industry Alliance Podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about creating a textile magazine with my guest, Polly Leonard. Polly is the founder of Selvage, an internationally renowned textile magazine that was launched in 2003 and now has almost 100 issues to its name. From its modest beginnings on Polly's kitchen table, the magazine revolutionized the way textiles are presented and quickly became the world's leading textile publication and now has a readership of over 75,000 and a dedicated international following. As well as a magazine, Polly has since launched an online artisan emporium, as well as the Selvage World Fair, and creative collaborations with the likes of Liberty, Anthropology, the National Trust, and the v Polly has a specialist knowledge in all aspects of textiles with particular interest in the role textiles has played in the evolution of humanity. Her own textile practice encompasses using weaving, embroidery, and basket making to produce sculpture. She's taught and lectured around the world Selvage combines her passions for social history, fine art, and craft. Polly Leonard, welcome.
1: Hi, Abby. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's an honor to be
0: here. And it's an honor to talk with you. I'm so excited to learn about Salvage, this beautiful magazine that you've created. So I'd love to walk back a little bit and talk about your background. I know that you didn't really study journalism, even though you are in the magazine business. You studied embroidery and weaving. Is that right? It is. Yes.
1: Yes. I came to embroidery through an interesting painting, um, I uh, left high school, um, went to art school uh, with the intention of becoming a painter. Um, And through a desire to add texture to my paintings, I took a needle and thread and started stitching into my canvases only for my tutor to point me in the direction of the embroidery department to tell me what I was doing was actually embroidery. So
0: um, that's how I, I... you know, arrived at embroidery weaving. That's so fascinating. You just really wanted to add texture. Okay. And so you started to study embroidery and weaving. And um, and then um, after you um, graduated, did you then, I know you you came to the US at a certain point to, to get a master's degree. Was that directly after or was there some work experience in between?
1: No, so I uh, graduated from Glasgow School of Art and then uh, won a scholarship and uh, went to study in Philadelphia at the Tyler School of Art. Um, and at that point, um, I was really very interested in the infrastructure. There seemed to be in the U.S. that there wasn't in the U.K. at that time and um, I developed my work. I, I moved probably from producing flat work uh, to sculpture. Um, starting uh, at that point, I didn't really know um, very much about basket-making techniques, so I was making vessels uh, through a, a technique called double cloth with weaving. Um, uh, and that that's where my kind of interest in supporting artists I suppose the seeds were planted at that time Mm. Uh, I then came back to the UK after my my two years and did a teacher training uh, course and became a high school teacher
0: okay Right. And so you did that for a long, a long period of of time taught high school. And, um, and was that satisfying? Did you enjoy being, I I was also a teacher, I was a middle school teacher. Um, And I know that it's, it's very satisfying, but it's also, um, in my experience, very tiring, (laughs) at least if it was for me. I, I very much loved it.
1: Um, I worked in a great school. Um, a school that was outside of the um, national school system. So it was an independent school. So I was pretty much left to my own devices. Um, As someone who has lots of ideas, it's great being a teacher because you have all of these hands who, you know, do all of the work, work to fulfill your ideas. So I had a great time and uh, probably at that point thought maybe I'll end up being a headmistress, but I really, really enjoyed it. And I love the fact that I had long holidays because during the, that long, long summer break, I did lots of traveling uh, and carried on learning and thinking about textiles uh, for all of those years I was teaching.
0: Mm, Yeah. Right. It gave you that freedom. So it's like that combination. Um, That's great. And then, but life changed. It sounds like when, um, when your life changed and, and that, that was becoming a mother. It was absolutely. Uh, so that was, uh, I suppose 21 years ago,
1: uh, my son's now 21. Um, so I was at home, uh, with a baby and terribly, terribly bored. Um, so I, at that point, you know, you think, well, what, what can I do? So I started writing, um, exhibition reviews and a few articles and just anything that I could do you know around his schedule Um, and at that point I was asked to edit uh, a magazine uh, by an organization called the Embroiderers Guild which is an amateur guild of which there are many in the UK Uh, and I did that for a couple of years Um, and then actually uh, then actually they sacked me because I overspent their budget.
0: What did you spend the money
1: on? Uh, on? On photographs, actually, professional photographs. So when I took over this magazine, it was very much a self congratulatory amateur publication. Um, that um, tiny little photographs many of which were out of focus. Um, and I, well, I was taken on to um, to uplift uh, the publication, which I did, but that obviously meant spending more on writers and photographers, um, which the organisation was in two minds about, I suppose. Um, they liked the idea, but perhaps the reality wasn't so um so successful for them so um at that point uh I'd really got the bug I'd really f- felt that maybe I'm not the only person who's not just interested in fine art textiles but also interested in fashion and interiors and the social history of textiles um And I had one of those, you know, moments of inspiration uh, after a meeting at at the Embroidery Guild where I thought, actually, there could be a beautiful magazine um, that has good quality writing that covers this
0: entire spectrum of Mm. textiles. And that, that was when Selvage was born. Right, right. That's so interesting. And I love that. I love that they fired you for, 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 foot overspending the photography budget because um, Salvage, if anything, in my mind is known for its photography. So that, that just um, <laughs> sort of signified the future. Um, so you had that vision. Okay. Um, and so what was the next step? I mean, you, it, it sort of came to you like what this could be. Um, and you were home, a mother, a new mother. Um, mm-hmm. So what did you do? And this was, it sounds like the early 2000s, um, to, make, to make this actually come to life? Uh, so I think
1: it's very significant that it was in 2003. And I think if you look around, there are a lot of businesses that started in 2003. At that point, the internet was just big enough to support um, a niche publication. I think if Selvage, if I'd started it a year before, I would have run out of money before I I got a large enough circulation to sustain the magazine. Hmm. And maybe if I did it a year later, someone else would have done it. Uh, But I started in a very amateur way. And, of course, by that point, I'd been teaching for 10 years. I was a member of lots of uh, textile-related organizations. So I knew some people within the field. I put together, um, it was kind of like crowdfunding before crowdfunding. (laughs) I made a very amateur, a 4 photocopied sheet of of paper that said, I'm Polly Leonard, I'm going to make a magazine about textiles, would you? You like a free copy, and I took that to a trade fair called the Knitting and Stitching Show, and I handed out those flyers saying, "Please contact me if you'd like a free copy." So I got uh, enough. Uh, I got about five thousand people came back to me and said they'd like a free copy. So I had enough money to produce one issue, uh, and I did that. Sent it all out um, with a with a letter saying. If you like this please subscribe. Mm-hmm. I got enough subscriptions from that first mail shot to produce a second issue. So at first it wasn't a bi-monthly. It was a as and when I could afford to print another another issue. And I suppose it took about 2 years to set into that regular printing schedule.
0: Okay. Wow. Yeah. And so you really did fund it at the the start from your own savings, that first issue. That very first issue. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it was just you producing it. The first one. (laughs) Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, I suppose it was a bit of a dream. You think, is it, is it possible? Will people be interested? And I felt I just had to have a go at it. I don't know whether I knew it would be successful
0: or not at that point. Um, but you you've got to try. Right, exactly. And do you remember what you put in there in the first one like oh. what kind of content? <laughs> I'm super embarrassed by it. Um
1: there was a Vivian um there was a exhibition at the VNA we had. We had right at the very start we had textiles from around the world. Okay. Um, I felt uh, and still feel very strongly you can't um, I could not have put together a publication that was just UK-centric. right? Because of the history of textiles, um, you know, textiles was the start of globalization. Uh, They are connected in a tangled web that stretches around the globe. So not only did the circulation of the magazine have to to be worldwide right from the start, but the content had to reflect that as well. Uh, So at that point, I had articles about new kind of high tech technology textiles. Uh, there was fine art, there was interiors, uh, there was a fashion story, a Vivian Westwood fashion story. So um, it was a big kind of like a rag bag of, of things to do with textiles.
0: Okay. In a, very, a very kind of broad sweep. And do you feel like, even though you're embarrassed by the first one, of course, as we all are who've ever started something, um, uh, you know, and look back, but do you feel, though, that that the vision you had initially is still, in its essence, the same as it is today?
1: Yes, I do. I do. And that very first issue called it caused a real stir. Uh, People were really excited about it. I think it was the first time that uh, I feel very strongly about, you know, I love textiles. I feel they should be respected. Um, The quality of the the images, as you mentioned, and the writing and the production standards were far higher, or noticeably higher, I think, than other magazines that were available at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what, it's an unusual shape. And, and, and I think that's what uh,
0: marked it out from the very beginning. Right. So let's talk a little bit about what makes for a selvage story. First of all, it is an unusual shape. Is it? Is it square? It's or? square. And that is because
1: when you're weaving, you weave on a grid. You have, you know, warp and weft and, and cloth comes on a grid so so everything about the magazine comes from textiles
0: wow okay yeah I hadn't realized the reasoning behind it being square but I do recognize that it is an unusual shape for a magazine um and and what makes for a salvage story so you have produced as we said in the introduction a, a hundred of these magazines since then Um, and when you're evaluating stories, because I'm sure people pitch stories to you or you're just out in the world looking, how do you say yes or no? Um, what, what, what do you make something qualify? Um, okay. Uh, it has to be very well written that
1: that's, um, that's the starting point. Um, I like stories that have um, a reason for them being there. Um, We tend not to publish the, I'm a designer and I work with artisans and I enable them to, you know, the artisans to continue weaving. You know, that kind of story just doesn't particularly infuse me um I've got a story I'm working on for our next issue about what isn't what is not cultural appropriation so looking at I suppose horror stories and then looking at positive stories of where designers and artisans have worked together Um, I've got um an article about the the long-term legacy of the Charleston Farmhouse, that was the residence of the Bloomsbury group of painters and artists at the beginning of the 20th century. And their legacy of textile design uh, has ricocheted throughout the last 100 years. And we have an article about uh, contemporary designers and artists who are influenced by that legacy. So that's the kind of thing... um, that we look for,
0: and is there um, a bar for advertisers? Because the advertising is also very beautiful, and I wondered whether you'll take just any advertiser or <laughs> um, or whether you reject some. Ah, that's a very good question,
1: um, especially now at the you know in the time of um, lockdowns around the world where the economy is extraordinarily fragile. We do. Uh, turn away advertisers that uh, don't fit our uh, vision of what textiles should be about but also don't fit our aesthetics um, I uh, strongly feel that textiles today which wasn't actually necessarily the case 17 years ago when I started the magazine but um sustainability in terms of environmentally and economic sustainability are something that aren't aren't optional for textile designers today. The same with diversity. So those principles do guide the editorial content and and, um, the advertising content
0: of the magazine. I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, H&H at Home, and here to do that is Darren Stern.
2: Hello, I'm Darren Stern. I work for Cologne Messe. We are the organizers of H&H Cologne, which takes place in Cologne, Germany. I'm based here in the Chicago area.
0: And tell us a little bit about what H&H Cologne is.
2: H&H Cologne, if I were to describe it, it's a Super Bowl for the soft crafts industry, Whether it's yarn and knitting, fabrics, sewing, notions, uh, the complete marketplace meets once a year, typically in Cologne, Germany, with over 423 excuse me, 429 exhibiting countries from 43 different nations, over 16,000 individuals also converging all in one city for three days of fun and the love of soft crafts.
0: Amazing. And so this year, due to COVID, H&H is going to look a little bit different. So how is it going to work this year?
2: Correct. Unfortunately, due to the global pandemic, we've had to shift to continue to support the marketplace. Uh, it it would not be feasible to provide a quality and safe environment uh, in, in the venue this year, so we are switching to H&H at home. H&H and at home will be a full digital edition that is on a state-of-the-art platform That allows you to have live streaming of product demonstrations, one-on-one video calls, instant messaging, exhibitor showcases, uh, knitting lounges, um, virtual cafes, and a complete immersive environment um, over multiple time zones uh, to still allow the world to convene for three days to continue doing business, sourcing product, and networking for the greater interest of the industry.
0: Amazing. And so this is really an opportunity for people like myself who've been curious about H&H but haven't been able to travel to Cologne in the past to be able to experience it.
2: Correct. The digital platform is the gateway is how, how I would look at it. Uh, this digital platform allows you to kind of get a taste for it, see what the greater world has, start to understand who they are, who are the people Interact with those people, ask them questions, and then let you have an understanding of what the complete marketplace looks like outside of the U.S. And then, leaving you back to 2022, where then again we'll be able to convene and you can touch those products, you can shake hand, and you can even build further on those relationships.
0: Darren, this sounds great. I'm excited for it. Tell us the dates.
2: H and H Cologne online or H H at home will be. March 26th to 28th, 2021. And then go ahead and plan on being back about that same weekend in 2022, but physically in Cologne.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Darren. We really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. I appreciate the time today.
0: Thank you so much, H&H at home. And now back to my conversation with Polly. And what about the photography Um What kinds of photographs are you looking for? Do you pay for photography? Um, Just talk about in general, your standards for photography and how the photographs and salvage work. Okay. So I'm a little bit obsessive
1: um, and I will stay up all night, even now, 17 years later to find the perfect image. Um, composition 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 are always my uh, kind of m- my kind of mantra. Uh, we don't uh, publish snapshots uh, so all of the images within the magazine are considered in terms of composition and I have a I suppose a, a fairly specific, Uh, vision for what makes uh, a good composition. Uh, I grew up in Yorkshire um, and I'm very influenced by the aesthetics of um, the Methodist chapel. So a very kind of minimalist aesthetic, which is kind of contradictory for someone who's interested in textiles, which are about embellishment. So I'm A textile enthusiast who's a little bit opposed to embellishment if it's not there for a reason. So that has given Selvage, I suppose subconsciously, a very kind of clean look. So um, if I'm looking at images, I try not to have a distracting background, or um, if I can't find an image, or I can't, um, as has been the case. This last year, if you can't commission someone to, you know, a photographer to go out and, and shoot something, I'll then resort to illustration. And we've always, since the first issue, had two or three illustrations uh, within each issue. And I think it's important for um, Salvage to support illustrators financially as well as to support photographers. And we do have a tiny budget that we stretch as far as we can but um we will pay for for photographs
0: if we can't find them for free okay and how important do you think it's been to the success of the magazine that you as the founder are a textile maker a textile expert a person who went to school for textiles taught textiles for years is a subject matter expert versus somebody who came into this because they wanted to be a magazine expert, a media mogul, um, a person who was um, passionate about selling magazines or the business of media. Um, so I'm just wondering you know, there's different reasons why people um, get into this business. And um, and And you got into it for for a specific reason, and I wondered whether you think that that has been a part of the secret of your success or longevity. Uh,
1: I think um, the magazine hit a moment when niche was was the thing, really. And I think it wouldn't have successfully fit within that niche. If I didn't have that specific knowledge, our readership are amateur sewers. They are interested professionals who who like something visually beautiful. But there are also academics, collectors, artists who have a very high level of very specific technical knowledge. And we pride ourselves on being accurate. So um, when I'm talking to new writers, uh, what I ask for is academic rigor with a journalistic style. So we don't have footnotes as an academic journal would, but we fact check uh, to the same level of detail. And that's really important that if we're talking about weaving, we use the correct terms.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. And, and same thing with photography. So you said you had a small budget and you do send out a photographer and, and pay them if you can't find a photo for free, do you pay writers as well? Yes, we do. We do. Okay. Um, Go ahead. I think one of the things that we've had
1: to do when the magazine uh, launched, there, there weren't a body of writers, who had specialist knowledge within this area. So there were, you know, there are writers who write about fine art and there are writers who write about interiors. But there weren't, um, there wasn't a stable of writers with this kind of specialist knowledge. And we have actually ourselves had to nurture those writers. Um, so we now have freelancers that we use again and again.
0: hmm Who've developed the sources yeah. and expertise in this area? Mm. Yes, uh huh. That's a, that's interesting, and um, I'm in that same uh, <laughs> that same boat now um, with Craft Industry Alliance as far as nurturing uh, freelancers um, in the crafts industry. So I understand what you're talking about. Um, and, um, and I wondered how you feel about that word craft. Um, you know, I feel like there's always this sort of push and pull about that word. Um, and I, and, and we've actually done, done a piece not too long ago about how we sort of need more than just that single word. Um, because sometimes, uh, it doesn't quite describe. Things very well. It sometimes is sort of mixed with arts and crafts, um, which seems sort of like something a, a child would do, but it can also be elevated. And I, I wondered how you feel about that word craft. Uh,
1: <laughs> I always, um, you know, whenever I see, you know, if I'm driving and I see craft fair, my instant reaction is to pull up and have a look because I'm endlessly curious. But I always at the same time think you have to be very careful about craft. Because it cannot, it can be something other than what you're expecting. So I do, um, I do feel everything has value. That value may or may not be aesthetic. So uh, someone who who makes something at home that's a fairly low level. Um, that has a value for that. That's very important. There are many reasons why people make things. Um, Selvage chooses to present the highest level of that uh, attainment. And we choose not to cover um, the lower end of that spectrum because there are other publications who do that. There are other places for that. Um, And we offer inspiration is a a thing that we often talk about rather than aspiration. Um, So we, I suppose, guide, uh, hopefully to bring our readers with us to aspire to the best something can possibly be. The highest level of design and the highest level of craftsmanship Um, and yes, it would be in an ideal world, we would have a different word for something that children produce and something that is a beautiful work of craftsmanship that, that has taken a lifetime to acquire those skills.
0: And how do you feel about Etsy? Um, I know you've you've talked a little bit in the past about about Etsy, um, its pros and its and its cons. And I wondered I wondered what you th- what you're thinking is now about Etsy.
1: Um, I think Etsy has value. I think it has a great deal of value for those people who make and sell things. Um, at the same time, um, it doesn't educate. Um, its audience in as to what is good and less good design. And there are principles that, that guide what is good design. Um, and that's something that's a little bit of a shame, uh, but it's better there than, than not. I, I think it's important that you know, as I said a moment ago, there is value in all, all levels of work, and it's important that people have the opportunity to make and to sell their work, and and also to buy work that's at a, a very reasonable price. Um, craft shouldn't be completely elitist, but there is there needs to be some def, you know a differentiation between something that's aspirational and something that. Um,
0: is less. And I wondered too about the sort of business model um, of Selvage now. So, um, so you do have advertising, which is interesting. And I think about—I'm um, sure you're aware of Uppercase Magazine, yeah. correct? Wow. Yeah, and so that's another very beautiful magazine that kind of comes to mind. Um, independently produced by a person who Janine, who has a, a, a vision, um, so somewhat similar in in, um, but doesn't have advertising, and so I just thought I, I wondered, sort of um, the when you're thinking about the business model, um, the degree to which ad revenue is paying the bills versus. Newsstand revenue versus subscription revenue, um, as co- sort of the three buckets. And I wondered, you know what I mean? Uh, and I wondered if you, if you were be, would be willing to share sort of, sort of the breakdown there because, um, because they're, they're each, uh, a bucket there for you. And, and she doesn't have one of those. She doesn't have that, the ad revenue piece. And, um, I don't know whether, um, whether you would be willing to share w- which of those threes or how, th- how that breaks down for salvage. Um, so we've had a long a
1: long time
0: for this to and
1: it's ebbed and flowed over the years Um, we had uh, a very lucky break right at I think issue number five Um, the wife of the CEO of Barnes and Nobles um, saw a copy loved it so without us you know And when I started, I didn't know anything about magazine distribution. So they approached us right at the start and we had salvage in lots and lots of of Barnes & Noble stores. And that really, really gave a boost to us in the early days. So we made a significant uh, portion of our revenue from
0: um, direct sales through through bookstands. Um, and just to, just to pause there for one second, and we'll get back to that, the main question there, but when you do distribute from the UK to Barnes and Noble, which is primarily in the, in the U S, um, uh, how does that work? I mean, do they, there, do they take a significant cut of each of those sales? They do. And actually what, um,
1: what always uh, I found a little bit distressing about that is they would trash the unsold copies. Oh. And that is, you know, environmentally damaging. Yes. And just, just never seemed like the right thing to do. Uh, interestingly, uh, in 2020, as soon as the pandemic hit and the stores closed, we stopped doing all... Um, direct sales distribution we now have a handful of art gallery stores and uh, craft stores Um, and in fact our revenue has not been affected by that now whether that is because everyone's at home and they're reading more and buying online themselves but I think it's very unlikely that we'll go back to that model because I now think it's very dated. Um, the same with advertising. So 10, 15 years ago, we probably had 25% of the magazine um, filled with advertising, um, which was a, a significant part of our income. Today, and particularly in the last year, that has dropped to about 4 or 5% of the magazine. Um, and the advertisements that we have today are uh, almost a a platform for companies that we work with and support to promote themselves. So rather than us going out and trying to sell advertising space, we,
0: we tend to be reactive where companies come to us. Okay. So they're coming to you and then you're, so you don't have like an ad sales team or something like that. I where a, I have a marketing um, uh, a lady that works for us who, who does marketing and
1: she works out partnerships and a little bit of advertising, but it's, it's very, very small. And at the same time, um, the subscribers have grown and single copy sales through the website have grown. so um, that proportion, it's probably 85 or 90 percent subscribers today, okay. whereas it was probably um, you know 30 30 30 percent 17
0: right. years. ago. so interesting and it so that is actually really revealing that the business model has changed mm. yes, yeah yeah over time and and i'm guessing you foresee it continuing to to trend towards subscribers over time um yeah. and and i'm wondering and you you've um added events as well as um partnerships and a store um to to complement The the magazine. The magazine's still the core, and these are are things that support the magazine's vision. Um, And do you feel, and and we'll talk about each of those, but do you feel that the magazine could survive, I guess, without those things at this point? Um,
1: It could survive. Um, My job would be less interesting. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Sure. uh, And it's salvage is a magazine that's not just about making a profit that has never been our sole motivation uh i don't know if you remember abby but i mentioned seeing infrastructure in the united states yeah for supporting artists so there were galleries and there was a magazine called fiber arts this is way back in the 90s um in fact, the eighties probably, and there
0: was nothing like that in the UK. This was when you were in the US in yes. Philadelphia for your for your degree.
1: Absolutely, and at that point, I was really interested in how that network, that infrastructure, really supported um, artists and designers. And I saw when I'd uh, graduated, and then I, when I'd been teaching. That a whole generation of talented artists who had graduated at the same time as myself um, had failed to survive because there weren't the galleries, there weren't the publications, there weren't events that would help enable them to generate income from their craft. So one of the, or the the mission of Selvage is
0: to support textile makers worldwide. Right. And just as you've kind of grown your freelance pool, you've yeah. grown these these events and these um, programs to help to support that that mission. Um okay, so let's talk now about the um about the events. So so one of these is um is the World's Fair. So what is that? Um and, and maybe pre-COVID times, what did what did that look like? What did that obviously everything has has changed, but what did that look like um in 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 the times before everybody was was at home?
1: so it didn't start out as a world fair. It started out about 10 years ago as um, the Selvage Fair. And we had a little shop at the time, and next door to the shop was a very, um, a kind of cute, tiny uh, church hall. So we thought, wouldn't it be fun to bring the makers that we'd featured in the magazine? to an event and uh, invite our readers to come along and they can buy their products and they can get to know the artists. And we had vendors selling uh, designer-made products. We had uh, textile materials and, and notions, etc. And we had um, vintage and antique textiles. Um, and it was great fun. We had queues around the corner. Um, wow. And those grew quite, quite quickly to be quite large events, um, and we had even in the very early days one or two international exhibitors, and then a couple of years ago I decided um, with I don't know if the US is the same, but within the UK um, there was a, a real boom in the craft fair, and there's a craft fair in London pre-COVID times, virtually every weekend. And I felt Selvage needed to uh, bring our events more in line with the magazine and to make a point of departure from the many, many other uh, competitor events. So we then uh, developed a business model whereby we would have a selective event selected each year by a different panel of international judges Uh, and the successful applicants, we would cover their airfare to London and their accommodation. I felt really strongly and still do that um, financial need, because we live, you know, the world is economically unequal that I didn't want to exclude artisans because of, um, Financial difficulty. So, Selvage would cover all of the expenses and take a percentage of the, the goods that were sold. And we'd spent about two years planning this, and we had our group of artisans. Uh, we had a thousand applicants wow. for our first event and <laughs> chose 100 artists. Um, and then COVID struck. now ah. so, <laughs> yeah. uh, instead of cancelling the event, uh, we thought let's what what can we do online to um, to bring as much of that content as possible so um, we taught artisans how to do a zoom presentation and to um, run a workshop via zoom and and we had a whole host of uh we had the the best thing about it i think was a slow tv um experience of 48 hours of live streamed um slow tv from a weaving village uh in northern india which was just charming uh you could watch the weavers making a warp and you can hear the the birds singing and the cattle walking around. It was just very atmospheric. Oh, yeah. And we had 100 artisans and they sold their products. And the event was incredible. And although we will in the future, I don't know whether it'll be next September. We're kind of sitting on the fence at the moment. Mm-hmm. Have that as a live event, but there will always be some sort of digital element. Um because our readers are geographically widely spread, um, it enables all of the readers to engage with that rather than just those who
0: could travel to London. Right. Now that you've had that experience of doing a successful digital experience, mm-hmm. yeah. you you see how how it can go and and uh, and reach everybody. Mm-hmm. So it's a silver lining, honestly. Um, of this of this sort of terrible year, which which is good, um, and and then what about these these um, partnerships that that you've done um, with some of these companies uh, that we mentioned in and, and also museums that we've mentioned in the introduction with Anthrop- anthropology with the National Trust, the v and um, What what have those done for salvage or how? I guess would you evaluate a partnership opportunity? Because I'm sure there have been others that have come by your desk that you've said, mm, you know, that's not quite right for Salvage. Whereas these ones were ones where you've said, yes, let's let's do this. Um, and, and so maybe maybe talk a little bit about why these worked and and those others didn't um, didn't work for for the brand. So. Selfage
1: has um, an educational mission. Um, My personal peeve, (laughs) I'm just going to go a little bit roundabout. I mean, my personal peeve is that if you ask your average person in the street, what is cloth or what is textiles, Uh, they would probably, something would come into their heads. something that was uh, like a T-shirt, a cotton jersey or a man-made fiber or a pair of jeans. So it would be a very narrow vision. If you asked the same question 50 years ago, you would have a very different um, idea. Uh, The fibers that uh, are available around the world and the textile techniques that are available around the world are huge. And it's a vast resource of wondrous things that we never see today. We rarely, rarely buy anything made of mohair or alpaca or linen even, all of these wonderful fibers and interesting weave structures or interesting hand knits. So that educational mission directs our partnerships. So if our partnership provides an opportunity for Selvage to communicate that vision of the wondrous world of textiles, then for us it's successful. And if it doesn't, then they tend to be a lot of work for, for not very
0: much return. Got it.
1: That's
0: that's kind of. Yeah. Right. And I think that's a great, I think that's a great lesson just in general for business owners to think through, like, what do you care about? And then how do you use that to determine what to say yes to? Um, And you have such a clear vision for that. So I think that's really great to hear. And um, and I wondered, you know, you are really at the center of this magazine and I wondered now, you know, you're at a hundred issues. If you have, uh, I think you know where this is headed, but if you have thoughts about a succession plan, if you, if you will, or, um, or what, what would happen beyond your personal involvement at some point, um, because, you know, your vision is so clear. Um, and, and yet, you know, obviously you can't do this forever, however much you clearly would want to. Um, so, so what would happen next? That's a very, very good question. Actually, I suppose you've hit a nerve, Abby. I don't Um, mean,
1: I didn't mean to, (laughs) to make you sad, but, um, in fact, interestingly, if I said, you know, what's the the element of success and what's the element, you know, the, the element of failure, I think I myself fit both of those categories. Um, and I think the magazine is not bigger than it is because I am preoccupied with the minutiae, Um And I think the magazine is as successful as it is because I'm obsessed with the minutiae. So um, that's that's just as it is. Uh, A succession plan, gosh. Um, My daughter is interested in writing. She's currently at university doing English literature. Uh, I would love her to take over one day, whether she will, whether that's something she wants to do or not, is entirely, you know, her decision. Uh, if that plan doesn't work, then um, I work with a very good team. Uh, my uh, features editor Laura is fantastic, and she could carry this on alone in the beat of, you know, the, the you know, in, in a second. Um, so there, there are people who uh, I would trust to continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've That's indoctrinated it. them over the years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: sure you have. I'm sure you have. Um, okay, I think the only other thing that we wanted to talk about before we get to your recommendations was the winter of making.
1: Ah, oh, this is an idea that I had back in September, after six months of pandemic. And textiles have have value, you know, in, in many ways, uh, aesthetically, intellectually, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they are the, the history of humanity is entirely linked to textiles. We wouldn't be where we are today without them. And one of the important... Um, maybe it's a side effect, is that it improves your mental health, making something. There's been masses of research that um, states that, you know, to knit, to sew, to make, to create, and particularly with textiles, uh, boosts your mood. And I just felt that many of our readers uh, would be in need of that this winter. Uh, So we embarked on a program of that's that's where the podcast came from. And we do Zoom workshops and Zoom talks. And we have a chat room where we encourage um, our readers to share their projects. Um, And that has been incredibly successful. The workshops sell out as soon as we, we do them. Uh, and we can offer interesting classes that um, we would not previously have been able to offer. We have tutors in India and in Mexico and participants in in South Africa and Japan and wherever. Uh, so that is a wonderful network that's come out of this yeah. uh, most terrible of years. And yeah. we will continue that uh we have plans for other other uh, things to do with making, and that's a side of the
0: business that we will be growing um, in, into next year. Yeah, a little bit more hands-on, it sounds yes. like. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's great. And a, a natural extension, I feel like. Um, yeah. And another silver lining. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So I want to get to your recommendations, some things that you've been doing during lockdown in the UK. Um, and it sounds like you've been attending some Zoom workshops yourself. Um, and so, um, and one of them was, it looks like on Swedish wool embroidery.
1: Yes. That is
0: a wonderful
1: uh, lady, Anna Karen uh, Jobs-Amberg. She is from the south of Sweden and in a place where people still regularly wear national dress, which to me is very interesting. And she taught a workshop um, how to do traditional Swedish wool embroidery and it was wonderful to learn a new skill, to have a conversation. You know, when we're all locked in our houses, uh, and just an entirely positive experience. She sent a materials pack full of you know the right colors and the right weight of yarn uh, from my teaching. You know, way way back when. Uh, I feel very strongly that. Um, The materials are extremely important if you're starting a project. Um, If you get the wrong materials, you've failed before you've even started. And that is such a wasted opportunity that um, we encourage all of our tutors to provide a materials pack. And that in itself is quite exciting to receive a, a pack of
0: hand spun yarn from, say, India. It is quite a thrill in itself. Absolutely. And then the anticipation of being able to, to learn to use it. Um, so great. So that's wonderful. And we'll try to link, um, even if she doesn't have an upcoming workshop, to her website so people can see what the work looks like. Okay. Yeah, absolutely, in the show notes. And you've been knitting some socks as well. Uh (laughs) There's a a charity um, for homeless people in the UK. So
1: I have been knitting socks for that um, charity. And I think socks are great because they don't take too long. And they're really interesting because you have lots of different techniques. You've got increasing and decreasing and you – You graft the heel and, um, you know, it's just really interesting, different thing, different techniques within a small scale. So it takes me, I don't know, maybe a week to to knit a, a pair of socks. I knit two socks together on circular needles and it's just quite interesting and quick
0: I've never worn a pair of hand knit socks, um, but I see them all the time on my Instagram. And um, I'm I'm not a knitter. My my daughter, who's 16, is a knitter. So, and she's actually looking for a project right now. She just made some gloves, so um, maybe I'll put her on some socks. That would be (laughs) for me. (laughs) That would be nice. Um, And then you also mentioned it's the Etn. Is that the European Textile Network? That is. They're having a free membership. Yes. I just wanted to to promote that for them.
1: They're a fantastic organization. They have, um, the headquarters have recently moved to Hasla in uh, northern Austria, uh, where they have a textile museum and they do workshops. And they have very generously offered free membership uh, to anyone uh, until the end of the year. Um, and they have great resources, and I would just recommend anyone to go and have a look at their website, and and look around and see what there is. Um, it's just a really nice supportive thing that they are
0: doing during this this uh, pandemic time. Terrific! That's great to know about. Thank you, and Polly, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. It was really great talking with you. Thank you so much, Abby. It's been great fun. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by H&H Cologne at Home. H&H Cologne at Home is a 100% digital marketplace. From March 26 to 28, 2021, Cologne Mesa will present the latest trends and product innovations as part of the new comprehensive H&H Cologne at Home Digital Marketplace. You'll find all fully updated information about your participation possibilities, new content, and prices for the digital H&H Cologne 2021 in the coming weeks on www.hh-cologne.com. Thank you so much, H&H Cologne at Home.